Good morning, church. Will you please open scripture with me to Matthew chapter 5? Our text today is verses 32, or I'm sorry, 31 and 32. And I'll read that here for us. Jesus is speaking. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Very few lives are untouched by the pain of divorce, whether someone's own marriage, parents or grandparents, siblings, friends, relatives. I don't know very many people who don't have divorce somewhere close to them. Divorce and remarriage are run-of-the-mill realities in a world filled with brokenness. And God knows this, and God cares, and Jesus says, I am with you. Last week, we saw the biblical vision for marriage as God made it, and we saw how marriage points to the gospel. The gospel is like food coloring squeezed into a bowl of water. It may not look like it's doing much initially, but give it a few minutes. That coloring is going to seep into every part of the bowl, not one inch of water left untouched. And here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is showing the effects of the gospel and how it permeates every aspect of the lives of his people. It touches everything. Jesus is Lord. And today, Jesus is showing how the gospel even gets into the very sensitive areas of divorce and remarriage. And I realize this is a painfully sensitive subject that gets into the deepest hurt of many people. And I want to handle it with painstaking sensitivity. And quite frankly, it would be better or not better. It would just be easier to not handle it at all. Um, But I committed to you to preach the whole Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus preached it, he went here. And so will we. However, I hope that even in this area of deep heartache for many, we can see the grace of God shining through. And we believe in a God whose word is good. And so I believe we can trust that even in how God speaks of divorce and remarriage, we can see his goodness, his grace. We can see that what he says and why he says it is for our good and ultimate joy. In fact, if I were to sum up what I'm saying this morning in a nutshell, It would be this, that Christians can know God's word and depend on God's grace in walking through the pain of broken marriages. Christians can know God's word and depend on God's grace in walking through the pain of broken marriages. And some people may find it odd that Jesus talks about divorce and remarriage in the Sermon on the Mount, but remember with me for a moment what the Sermon on the Mount is. This is... This is Jesus delivering to his people uh, a portrait of what it looks like to live as citizens of his kingdom under the new covenant. Matthew is out to show how Jesus is the long-anticipated Messiah. He is the greater son of David, Israel's greatest king. He's greater than David. In fact, he's the prophet that Moses said was coming who's greater than Moses. So you take the two guys, David and Moses, that the, the Jews revered, and you see that Jesus is greater. And his kingdom is one that's populated only by those who are in him. That is, those who are poor in spirit and come to Christ in repentant faith, trusting in his mercy, being made new. 
While, the, G- while the, Jews, the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day claimed to be the keepers of God's word, they claimed to be the ones whose lives exemplified to the utmost the kind of perfection that Moses envisioned. And Jesus says they actually don't understand God's word much at all. The righteousness that they're putting out is a righteousness that's surface level. But those who are made new in the kingdom of heaven have a righteousness that goes all the way down to the heart and works all the way out in every aspect of their lives. And in today's passage, we see what Jesus says about marriage, divorce, and remarriage in his people's lives. And given that Jesus says that divorce and remarriage here for any other reason than sexual immorality is adultery, it makes sense why he's talking about it here in the Sermon on the Mount, because in the section just before, he's talked about the hard adultery of lust. And now he's talking about adultery through wrongful divorce and remarriage. And he's doing this against a particular backdrop, which is the only place in the law of Moses where divorce is discussed. And if you would, turn with me. We're going to go back and see that spot in Deuteronomy chapter 24. Deuteronomy 24. And verses 1 through 4. This is, again, the only place in the entire law where divorce is discussed. And I'll read beginning in verse 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again, to be his wife after she's been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. This is an interesting passage, to be sure. And whatever's going on here, we can be sure that Moses is not commanding divorce. Nowhere in the entire law does Moses ever command divorce. In fact, in this only passage dealing with divorce, it only says that if a man finds some indecency in his wife and sends her away, he gives her a certificate of divorce, and then if she's remarried and that marriage ends for whatever reason, he cannot marry her again. That's what we're told. We're not told precisely why that is. We're just told that it's the case. And if you look at that word in verse 1, indecency, some indecency, Um, it, It means nakedness. And so what may be in view is some kind of sexual sin, um, probably not adultery proper because the consequence in the law for adultery was death. And so it's probably some kind of sexual sin other than adultery, but we can't be dogmatic on that fact. But what we can see, and what I'm hoping that you've seen here in just our brief look at this, is how by the time of Christ, two main schools of interpretation had arisen around this passage from two Pharisees that predate Jesus by about 20 years or so. On the one hand, you had a conservative rabbi named Shammai, and he looked at Deuteronomy 24, some indecency, and realized that it's, you know, it means nakedness, and he says it's only for sexual immorality of some kind or other that divorce is acceptable. 
This other guy, on the other hand, his name is Hillel. Um, he was more liberal in his approach to these things, and he looked at indecency, and he says, no, it's, it's some indecency. It's anything the husband finds that he thinks this is not as it should be. So the, one of the examples that actually came up in the rabbi's teaching was if, she, you know, if the wife burns her husband's dinner, and he, doesn't, he just can't deal with it, it's been one too many times, she can, he can divorce her. She, how many times have I asked her to stuff the socks? Don't just fold them. Divorce. You know what? Or she just doesn't look the way she did on her wedding day, and I just find that indecent. Divorce. It's a super liberal approach that, as crazy as that sounds to us, but maybe not so much given the context in which we live, um, it was that liberal view that had become the predominant one in the first century. And Jesus is looking at that and going, no, 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 this is not what's going on at all. Okay, it's not what's going on at all. The Pharisees thought that their super lax divorce standards by misunderstanding Moses were technically within the bounds of righteousness. And so they thought, hey, do as we do. You put away your wives for any reason you want, and you can still be righteous. But like Jesus tells his disciples, the kind of righteousness that the gospel produces in the heart of a person and then grows out in their lives is a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. Don't do as they do, do as God says. And so going back to Matthew chapter 5, we see here that Jesus ends up siding a lot closer with Shammai than he does with Hillel. He says in verse 32, but I say to you, in contrast to the way that Moses has been misunderstood, I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So Jesus' statement on divorce and remarriage has to be understood in light of how Jesus actually understands marriage to begin with. And we saw that the entire sermon last week, how Jesus views marriage. We saw from Genesis all the way through, I think we ended in Ephesians, and this carries us through the whole scriptures, that Jesus views marriage as a public covenant between one man and one woman for life, sealed with a sexual relationship. And that one flesh union is so intimate and so profound that what God's actually doing there is he designed it to tell the gospel story of Christ's love for his church and his church's love for him which we heard read to us from Ephesians 5 a few minutes ago. Jesus has the highest view of marriage imaginable. And this is why, while even the conservative rabbis actually commanded divorce in the case of sexual immorality, Jesus never commands it. He merely permits it in certain instances. He didn't command it at all. And that's where actually we can start to understand what God's word teaches about divorce and remarriage. And the first thing we see there is that divorce is never commanded. Divorce is never commanded. Nowhere in scripture. So while the Pharisees misunderstood Moses to be commanding it, Jesus says in Matthew 19, which we also saw read earlier, that Moses only permitted it. He didn't go so far as to command it either. And here on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus certainly isn't commanding divorce, but only permitting it in one particular instance, which is sexual immorality. So divorce is never commanded. If a Christian chooses to stay with their spouse after their spouse has committed adultery, they are well within their rights to do that. They certainly may be told by their friends and relatives, you got to dump, dump that loser. And, but if they say, no, I choose to stay, this glorifies God. 
They're certainly not bound to do that, but they're certainly free to do it, whereas the Pharisees taught they had to do it. Divorce is never commanded. And yet we do live in a world that's soaked to the bone with sin. Really bad stuff happens. Even Christians, as much as they are being sanctified, can fall into really bad sin from time to time. And so we look here at the reality that sometimes, even though divorce is never commanded, there are very limited instances where it is sometimes permitted. And Jesus mentions the primary instance of that here in verse 32, when he says, anyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So Jesus says that divorce and remarriage for any reason other than sexual immorality is adultery. And specifically because we actually care about the words that Jesus uses, Jesus says that if a man wrongfully divorces his wife, he actually causes her to commit adultery. Now remember what adultery is. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago. Adultery is a married person stepping outside their marriage covenant sexually. So, and it's not just the, the act of divorce that is the point of adultery, but the remarriage to someone after a divorce has wrongfully happened, okay? That's the point. That raises the question, well, how, how does a husband who has wrongly done that to his wife then cause her to commit adultery? That part's not at all clear. Until we understand that in Jesus' day, it was universally understood that uh, someone who was, a woman who was divorced wrongly or rightly, whatever the reason, would remarry because this was her primary means of protection. It was her primary means of support. And so it was going to happen. And Jesus is saying the husband who does that to his wife puts her in a position to remarry when she shouldn't, which is adultery. And we might cry, foul, Where, what, about, what about the guy? He's the one who's doing this. Well, remember what, what we saw in Matthew 19. Jesus says the man who does this wrongly commits adultery as he remarries as well. Both on both sides of the marriage, there is sin, and yet the lion's share of the blame falls on the person who's doing the divorcing wrongly. It is a terrible weight to bear to cause someone else to sin. Scripture does not take that lightly at all. And yet Jesus says there's one situation where a divorce and a subsequent remarriage is not sinful, sexual immorality. And the word he uses there, he, he could have used the word adultery, he doesn't. It was readily available to him. But he uses the word sexual immorality, which actually is something that goes wider than adultery. Several kinds of activity outside the bounds of the marriage covenant, which included adultery, but also included homosexuality or bestiality, prostitution, and other things. Okay, so it was a wider word. Now, sometimes people go, hey, you know, look what he just said. Lust is heart adultery. Uh, a wrong glance at a woman. The lingering of the eyes. He didn't close his eyes when we went to that movie. I can divorce him. No, that's not what that word means. The word always refers to an active, uh, physical, sexual sin that steps outside the marriage covenant. It's basically, and, and this is why we can rightly call it adultery, is it's, it's any kind of unfaithfulness in a marriage sexually. And in a situation like that, divorce, Jesus says, is permitted because the sacred covenant union has been broken at the most profound level. Okay? It's permitted. And that's the only time while Jesus was on earth that he ever said divorce 
can happen without it being sin. But after Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead and ascended to heaven, more scripture was given. And so turn with me to 1 Corinthians 7. I want to I show you here one other time after Jesus left the earth that divorce is permitted in the lives of God's people. 1 Corinthians 7. Here, through the Apostle Paul, the Holy Spirit gives one further situation. Beginning in verse 12, he's, now you need to know what's going on in 1 Corinthians 7 is Paul's addressing a lot of questions that the Corinthians had asked about marriage and, and things like that. And so he's going from one subject to another, all within the broad heading of marriage and singleness. Okay? And so now he's turning the corner on another question. He says, to the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Now, when Paul says in verse 12 that he's giving instruction, not the Lord, what he's not saying is that what he's saying is up for debate. He's not saying, hey, just so you know, this is my opinion. I, you know, just take it for what it is, but Jesus isn't actually saying it. What he's doing here is he's looking back on what Jesus said during his earthly ministry. And he's saying, the situation that I'm getting into here, Jesus never talked about it. He's talking about it now, though. He is, after all, writing inspired scripture. And every word of scripture bears equal weight and authority. And so Jesus is absolutely dealing with it, but he's doing it through the apostle's pen. And what Paul means is that in the situation he's addressing, he doesn't have a record of what Jesus is saying. But in addition to what Jesus did say about divorce, which is adultery, okay, if one spouse is a Christian and the other is not, okay, so you have one Christian spouse and a non-Christian spouse, Divorce is permitted by God if the non-Christian spouse wants out. That is the only other instance, abandonment by an unbeliever from the marriage. And in that situation, the abandoned Christian spouse has the freedom to divorce at that point. But as long as the unbelieving spouse wants to remain married, the marriage must continue. And look at what happens. By God's grace, there's gospel influence in that marriage day by day. And children get influenced by the gospel and they are holy in some sense. That is the power of the gospel in a home where even unbelievers live. And so let's say we have a married couple. We'll call them Bob and Sarah, okay? Bob and Sarah. Bob becomes a Christian after he and Sarah were married. Well, Sarah continues to reject Christ. As long as Sarah wants to remain married, Bob is to remain married, okay? But if through Bob's relationship with Christ, the gospel continues to influence him and she goes, I can't take it anymore. You have become far too kind. You have become far too patient. And quite frankly, I don't like that Bible you're reading to the kids. I want out. Bob is to say, okay. As much as his heart will break, he's to let her go. He's called to peace. Now, in every discussion of divorce and remarriage, the question of spousal abuse comes up. 
What if a spouse is in a marriage that's physically dangerous? What if the kids are in danger? Must they remain married in order to be within God's will? It's a terribly difficult decision to make. It's a terribly difficult situation to be in, much less counsel. But we're not in the dark on that. And the first thing we have to say, absolutely without question, is that protection must be given to the abused spouse and children. They must be protected at all costs, and the church should be on the front lines of doing the protecting. Whether divorce happens or not, we are under moral and spiritual obligation to protect an innocent spouse and their kids, possibly, probably, by getting the police involved, and then by providing shelter and protection. Okay, that's what we have to do in cases of genuine abuse. And I'm not talking about, sometimes the word abuse gets put on things that aren't abuse. And in, a, in an age where we just cheapen language, if everything is abuse, then nothing is abuse. But we're talking about, I think we all know the difference. Okay, and in those situations, protection has to be there and the church needs to lead the way. The second thing to say about this is that not all theologians and pastors are in agreement on what to do beyond protection. So everybody agrees on the protection part, but after that, there's no consensus about whether abuse constitutes valid grounds for divorce. There just isn't an agreement on that. However, I agree with theologians like John Frame and the commentator who's dealing with this passage in a recent edition of Table Talk magazine, who says this, As the church has considered the Bible's teaching on marriage, divorce, and other matters, it has come to recognize that abandonment also includes such things as continual, impenitent spousal or child abuse. I believe that that would be part of what Paul intends us to understand from the word in such cases. Wayne Grudem makes a strong argument for that in a recent book he wrote about this subject. But whatever, wherever you fall on that, whether you personally look at scripture and go, I just can't get there to the, to the abuse equals abandonment thing, that's fine. My aim there is not to convince you of that. It is to say, however, that in every case, divorce is no more a private matter than marriage is a private matter. Marriage is no more a private covenant than divorce can be a private dissolution of that covenant. By definition in scripture, it is a public covenant. And so if one spouse is a believer, they need to get their elders involved so that they can be counseled, cared for, ministered to, and loved all the way through the whole thing. That needs to happen. We are the church. Now, did you notice that scripture only specifies abandonment by an unbelieving spouse, not a believing spouse? Why is that? If you have two believers involved, are they stuck? Here's where we get into the reality of church discipline. If one spouse is a believer and the other is a professing believer, and well, let's just say for the matter that they're both believers, and one of them leaves, the church has to get involved and pursue that spouse for repentance. So let's go back to Bob and Sarah. You got Bob and Sarah. Both of them are professing believers, part of the church. Bob gets up and leaves Sarah and the kids. At that point, a Christian brother better be hot on his heels and saying, Bob, what are you doing? Go back and love your wife. Repent. And if he says, according to who? <laughs> you? I know what you did last summer. <laughs> you know, then at that point, as he keeps going, he has to bring two or three others along. And so you have a small group of men who come around Bob and say, Bob, what are you doing? Go home, love your wife, repent. And Bob says, you and whose army? He's like, well, the army of the elders, actually. And so the elders get involved and they go, Bob, what are you doing? 
go home, repent, believe the gospel, and love your wife. And if he says, yeah, there's differing views on these things, he keeps going. Then the whole church puts pressure on Bob and says, repent, go home, and love your wife. And if he says, nah, I'm good. We have no evidence that Bob was ever a Christian to begin with. And at that point, we treat him as an unbeliever. And Sarah is free to divorce and remarry, as painful as it will be. Divorce is never commanded by God, but he permits it when there's adultery, abandonment by an unbeliever, and in such cases as would qualify as abandonment. And again, all under the counsel and love of the local church. When divorce is permitted by God, however, and this is the third thing we need to say, whenever it's permitted by God, remarriage is always implied as a permission. Where God permits a dissolution of a marriage, he permits a remarriage. So when Jesus tells the Pharisees in Matthew 19 that anyone who divorces except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery, the implication is that divorce and remarriage when there has been sexual immorality is in fact not sinful. Remarriage after divorce was the universal norm in Jesus' day, and if he meant to say that that was wrong, he would have said it. He doesn't. Nowhere in scripture is it implied that a remarriage after a lawful marriage or a lawful divorce in God's sight is ever forbidden. And in 1 Corinthians 7, it's implied that a believer who's abandoned by an unbelieving spouse is free to remarry. Here in verse 15, Paul says that in such cases, a brother or sister is not enslaved. They're no longer bound to that marriage covenant. They are free. They are free. Only, and this is where we have to go down to verse 39, when he deals about Christian second marriages, he says, only in the Lord, only in the Lord. It has to be one believer to another. Now, what about in cases where there's been a wrongful divorce between two Christians? Okay, you got two Christians. They shouldn't be divorced, but they are. What do you do? It's not because of adultery. It's not because of abandonment by an unbeliever. And this is exactly the scenario that Paul gets at in 1 Corinthians 7, in verses 10 and 11. Look with me at these. We're already here in the chapter. Verses 10 and 11. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. In other words, Jesus already addressed this when he was here. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Okay? So in talking about two Christians who divorce wrongly, Paul says there's only two options for these two Christians. Remain single or marry each other again. Okay, sinful divorce between believers requires singleness or reconciliation of the marriage. Okay, if, if the marriage is wrongfully put aside in divorce, the spouses are not free to remarry anyone other than the person they made the original covenant with because the covenant is to be a lifelong covenant. So if Bob and Sarah, okay, so if Bob and Sarah are both believers and they divorce wrongly, then Bob and Sarah either remain single or they get back together. And not just back together, they go down and they get married again, okay? This is the only way that two divorced believers can glorify God and not add sin to an already sin-laden situation. But if there's one thing we know about human nature, simply by living in our own skin day after day, it's that oftentimes we compound sin with sin. And so you come up on situations, not uncommonly, where there's a sinful divorce and while forgiveness may be granted between spouses, reconciliation of the marriage 
is not possible. It's not possible. They can't remarry. What do you do? Is a believer in a situation like that where they cannot marry their first spouse again, even though there's been forgiveness granted, are they bound to live single for the rest of their lives? Again, this is an area where honestly held differences of interpretation come in among faithful Orthodox Bible scholars. Okay? However, my task as one of your pastors is having prayerfully looked through Scripture to tell you what I believe Scripture teaches about this. So I'm fully aware that some might disagree with me here, and that's okay. But I would commend to you three situations after a sinful divorce where remarriage to someone else may be a valid option for a Christian. And I'm not alone in thinking this. Okay, I did not make this up. <laughs> so remarriage after a sinful divorce is sometimes permitted when reconciliation is impossible. And the first situation is if the first person's spouse remarries. So the first situation is if the person's first spouse remarries. So when there's been a sinful divorce and one spouse remarries and there's no possibility of reconciling that marriage because there's another marriage involved, in that case, even if the other spouse is willing to reconcile, the covenant's already been broken. They can't go back into it. And I believe they are free to marry another believer. Adultery's already happened in the first spouse's remarriage, and now they can't reconcile. So if Bob divorces Sarah wrongly, and then marries another woman, Sarah can't restore her marriage to Bob, even if she wants to. And she's free to marry, I believe, another believer, if she desires that. A second situation that may allow for remarriage after a wrongful divorce is if one spouse is a genuine Christian, and the other cannot be considered in any way to be a Christian. So one spouse is a Christian. I mean, they shouldn't have gotten divorced in the first place. It wasn't for adultery. It wasn't for abandonment. But one spouse is a Christian. The other clearly is not. In that situation, so let's say again, Bob and Sarah, okay? Bob and Sarah divorce because they're both unhappy. They wake up one day. They're like, it just hasn't been fun. Let's just call it quits. We had a good run. And they, they pull the plug. And then after that, Bob gets serious about his faith. Because presumably, a spiritually mature Bob wouldn't have done that in the first place. But let's say he gets serious about his faith at this point, and Sarah obviously abandons any kind of Christianity at all, okay? So Bob's pursuing Christ, Sarah's running from Christ. Bob's spiritually alive, Sarah's spiritually dead. But they get to talking one day while Bob's dropping off the kids, and Sarah says she might be interested in getting remarried. What is Bob to do? Well, that's an extremely difficult situation. And again, there's disagreement among the faithful. Some theologians believe that because the marriage should never have ended in the first place, Bob can remarry her because he never should have divorced her anyway. Other theologians look here at what Paul says about believers only marrying believers and says he actually can't do that because now it's a spiritually mixed marriage. Yeah, it should not have divorced in the first place, but now that it's not a marriage, they can't add sin to that. Honestly, I don't know what to do in that situation. There... I think the argument could be made either way. I think in some sense it is a matter of conscience. However, in every sense, it's a matter of seeking the counsel of the leaders in your church so that they can help you walk through that. I am so grateful there's a plurality of elders involved in the local church by God's design for situations such as this. But, but I, I mention this because either way, the bottom line, okay, the bottom line either way of that discussion is that in the case of a sinful divorce where the former spouse is an unbeliever and the other spouse is a believer, 
I believe the believing spouse is free to marry another believer if they choose. I think they're free to do that. Whether they reconcile the old marriage, I don't know. But they're free to move on in the Lord. And then finally, the third situation I'll mention is in which is sinful. It is not sinful to remarry after an already sinful divorce. You tracking with me? (laughs) So sinful divorce. And it's not sinful to remarry if the former spouse dies. And this almost goes without saying, but Paul, Paul says it. He says it here in verses 39 and 40. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she's happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the spirit of God. So there it is. Um, I've tried to make as clear as possible, um, and, and I get this kind of like a flowchart type of a sermon. Uh, my dad was here in the first service. He's like, dude, that's a flowchart sermon. <laughs> it is true. I thought about that beforehand. Um, but I've tried to make as clear as possible the different complex aspects to this very difficult discussion to show you what scripture teaches. We have an understanding of what God's sufficient word says to us. In fact, we can know God's word about this and depend on his grace in moving through the pain of broken marriages. And I hope that you might let me close with a few words of encouragement and exhortation about these things so that whether you're single because you've never been married, whether you're married, single through divorce, or remarried, that that God would help us together as the church move forward in his grace in dealing with these things. And first, I want to place the emphasis where Jesus does in the divorce and remarriage discussion, which is that divorce is not God's plan. It is not his design. Malachi 2.16, some of the last words given in the Old Testament, says that divorce is violence. It tears apart something that God has intimately united And so the emphasis here has to be on protecting and nurturing and reconciling marriages at all costs. So remember back to last week, one of the things that we said marriage needs, what does every marriage need? It needs fierce guarding. It needs fierce guarding. It needs to be fought for. Sin needs to be aggressively put to death. Godly counsel needs to be sought. And so if there's trouble in your marriage, prayerfully tackle it head on. I plead with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Do not give the ground to the evil one. We need to double down on protecting the precious gift of marriage that God gives us. And we need to be encouraging one another, loving one another. Second, if you're unmarried because of a divorce, I want you to realize that even though your marriage may have ended, the great marriage to which your marriage pointed is very real. What is marriage for? It is for magnifying Christ. Things happen on this earth that shouldn't. Sorrow sets in where we would really wish that it wouldn't. But that doesn't do a thing to violate the reality of this great marriage to which each of us in Christ are a part. Not a bit. Your earthly marriage may be ended, but you're part of the spotless bride of Christ and you have a vital role to play in the church. The church, again, and I I don't think I can say this too much, the church is not a family of families. It's not a family of married couples and then some tag-alongs. There is no fifth wheel in the church. We are all of us together at the foot of the cross. Whatever situation you find yourself in, be the bride of Christ. And you may look back at your divorce and realize that it was sinful. Maybe this morning as we've looked at what scripture teaches, you may realize that. And if that's the case, then if you haven't already acknowledged this, then acknowledge that it was sinful 
and do what you do with all of your sin. Come to Jesus seeking mercy and then live in the freedom and fullness of his forgiveness because he does not withhold it from any of his children for any reason. And then look back at what we've seen this morning and figure out what is your situation and then devote yourself to God's will as he's revealed it in his word. And that might mean reconciling with a former spouse if that's possible. It may mean freedom to pursue another Christian marriage if you desire it. But wherever the way forward lies for you, lean in heavy to the grace of God because his grace is all over you. He's all over you. And realize that while singleness may not be your first choice, if you're in a situation where singleness is the road you're walking for a while, or maybe the road you're walking for all seasons, God's sufficient grace will help you to walk that road with purity, joy, obedience, and fruitfulness. And this Wednesday on the, on the Voice of the Valley podcast, we're going to talk more about singleness than we're able to get into here at all. But I, I would just encourage you to read 1 Corinthians 7 and see how Paul, the apostle, talks about singleness. He says there are some advantages there that he, he wishes, he goes so far as to say, I wish all were like I am. I enjoy so much freedom to serve Christ without constraint and worldly burdens. He says not everybody can handle that. That's okay. Jesus says that in Matthew 19. But do see what God says about singleness in 1 Corinthians 7 for those who can embrace that without temptation. And third, some people find themselves in a remarriage that they should never have been in in the first place. Okay, that happens. And you may have seen from scripture this morning that you were never free to pursue remarriage because you never should have divorced in the first place. And if you're in that situation, I want you to hear me clearly. Just because that second marriage or third marriage may have started adulterously, that doesn't mean that it continues adulterously. Okay, that's sometimes how this gets misunderstood. Yes, the point of the remarriage that shouldn't happen is adultery, but then it's a marriage. And Jesus intends for people in that situation not to heap divorce, the sin of divorce, onto the sin of the remarriage that shouldn't have happened. No, what does he say? There's a plan. There's a plan for that marriage. And what is that plan? We've seen it from Ephesians. To glorify Christ, to magnify Jesus. So be the best, godliest, most Christ-centered husband or wife that you can be. Love your spouse vigorously and fiercely defend that marriage. That will bring glory to the Holy One. And in last place, I want to end where we began by recognizing that no divorce is ever considered or ever had without a terrible depth of pain and sorrow. And if you've been sinned against by your spouse or your former spouse and you bear a weight that tempts you to bitterness, which makes sense to me, by the way, then I plead with you to run to Jesus and ask for his help in forgiving. He will give it. He's pleased to do so. What is humanly impossible for us is divinely possible for him. And every blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus is at your disposal if you're in Christ. And if you're the one who bears the lion's share of sin against your spouse or former spouse, then run to Jesus and ask his forgiveness and his mercy. And as you turn to him by faith, he gives it to you. He gives it to you. And then go, if you're able, to your spouse or your former spouse and ask their forgiveness. But whatever the case may be, please don't let the sins of unforgiveness and bitterness harden your heart against your Savior. Jesus died for sinners like us. What wondrous love is this, O oh my soul, that would cause the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse. And he did. He did. So some marriages may not be saved. Some former marriages may not be reconciled. 
But even when that's the case, forgiveness can still be granted because of Christ. Jesus is our great high priest. He knows, and his gospel is all over this. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus Christ, you are good and you do good. You have given us hard words, but not bad words. You've given us good words. And Lord, we thank you that you leave no stone unturned in our lives as you declare yourself Lord of all. And that even in the pain and sorrow of human sin in relationships, and especially marriages, we know that you are our very good and loving God who says, I am with you and will never forsake you. That you are interceding for us at the right hand of the Father even now. And that you give us strength to do all to which you've called us. And you do not leave us to our own devices. But Lord, it's not easy. Especially when we deal with something so painful, so profoundly hard as divorce and remarriage. We, we ask for your strength as the church to walk with one another in love through these things to bear one another's burdens, to pray for one another, to serve one another, and in all of it to bring glory and honor to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.